What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome back to FedWatch. It's CK. I got Ansel here, and we have a fantastic show for you all. Our favorite guy, Jerome Powell, he got on to 60 Minutes and uh, did an interview. We teased it out. We found out all the best clips in there, and uh, we are going to play them and react to them. I think this is going to be a great show. Um, Ansel, before we get into it, do you kind of have some uh, kind of initial thoughts or reactions to uh, to this interview? Jerome Powell seems like a straight shooter more than like Janet Yellen or for, uh, previous Fed chairman. Uh, I thought that this was an interesting interview. You could tell there was some theatrics going on. They're trying to pump up the market or at least like show uh, confidence. Uh, it's like an outreach. It's PR for the Fed right now. And there's a couple parts in there that we're not going to really play today, but I think it's interesting in that respect. So to see him, Powell talk about tent people, Powell talk about a couple other things, but that's not like monetary policy based. So we didn't really include that today, but yeah, we're going to get into kind of the, the juicier monetary clips here. Awesome. But before we get into this, let's talk about Bitcoin 2021. I'm so excited for this event. The momentum is absolutely unreal. Um, as you've heard many times before on this show, everyone is going to be there, um, including Ansel and myself. And uh, I'm very excited for the entire Bitcoin community to absolutely just come together and take over Miami. Um, I think we have like nine satellite events uh, planned already and scheduled on our website around the conference. So it's not just whale night. It's not just Bitcoin 2021 day one and two. It's not just the after party. But the entire week leading up to the conference, there will be, uh, you know, an ever growing list of just Bitcoin meetups, events, drinking, running, weightlifting, gun shooting, scuba diving, you know, all of that stuff. Like you want to do pretty much anything in South Florida with Bitcoiners is probably going to be happening in and around the conference. So, I mean, for a complete Bitcoin cultural gathering uh, to listen to the best speakers in the space, the, the leading minds. Uh, the Michael Saylors, the Jack Dorseys, like there's one place to be in that. That is Miami, June 3rd, 4th, and 5th. So do yourself a favor. Go check out the conference site. There's amazing stuff on there. There are amazing companies going to be at the conference. And uh, get yourself a ticket. Save yourself 10% off by using promo code Satoshi. And uh, from here on out, we have actually sold out more than 65% of our total capacity. We are on track to completely sell out the conference. So we have actually increased fiat price tickets. So you can buy Bitcoin, you can buy tickets with Bitcoin or with fiat. And when you buy with Bitcoin, you save $200 uh, over the uh, the fiat prices. And when you use promo code Satoshi, you save another 10% off regardless of your payment method. But at this point, you're just giving up cash by, by spending fiat. So uh, pay us in Bitcoin. We like to get paid in Bitcoin and uh, yeah, save yourself some cash by getting your ticket that way. All right. Enough from me, Ansel. Let's get into this podcast. I'm really excited to uh, to dive into this testimony. All right. Yeah. The first clip here we're going to take a listen to is Powell talking about money market funds. And uh, for the listener, uh, we've talked about this a lot on the show, and it's centered around the plumbing of the system, right? How do you lend and how do you borrow uh, collateral and repo and all of that stuff. So these are like the, the plumbing of the system. And this is where he talks about that. Let's play the first clip. Most parts of the financial system made it through 
quite a stress test last year when we when we lost you know 25 percent of GDP and 30 million jobs in in the space of of a couple of months. Now some parts of the financial system had to be bailed out again. Places like money market funds and things like that, where we had to step in again and provide liquidity. You mentioned the money market funds. Many people invest in the money market funds. They froze up during COVID. They froze up in 2008 during the Great Recession. Is there something fundamentally broken about that market? There's a structural issue, and we know this, and it really is time to address it decisively. And that just is, sometimes there arises a situation where people want to take their money out and it's difficult for money market funds to to turn their assets into cash quickly enough. And so what's had to happen twice is the, the Fed came in and became a source of liquidity for money market funds. And after the global financial crisis, when it happened the first time, we did some reforms. Those reforms worked a little bit, but they didn't really do the job because once again this time we had to step in and provide liquidity on behalf of the government to, to bail out these private businesses. And, you know, when, when something's happened twice, it really is time to go ahead and fix it. Every private business ought to have the ability to deal with the range of plausible things that might happen to it. And that's, that's true of money market funds, as it is for other businesses. How do you fix it? There are many ideas that are out there, and they're all under discussion, uh, by the way, internationally as well. What it boils down to is that money market funds are going to need to be resilient enough so that if they have a liquidity shock like this, they can handle it. So what did you think? I mean, listening to him talk, it was, it was like a little upsetting. Um, you know, just the way that he kind of uh, framed is like the markets are broken and the Fed needs to come in and fix the markets. Uh, I, I really don't like that narrative. Uh, and failure. even coming in. Yeah, even in coming in, like, you know, us having to provide liquidity on behalf of the government, it's like these these markets are the most regulated markets in the world. Like, they're not even markets at this point. So, like, like w- these aren't market failures. These are your failures. I don't know. That, that, was, my, that was my only reaction in listening to him kind of, like, talk about, you know, addressing the money market funds and, you know, fixing it in 2008 and now in, in 2020. Yeah, it's it's a structural issue that this uh, the market builds up this um, I guess over leverage, and then they have to come in and rescue it. So that's the narrative that he's trying to spin. And and then uh, he said, "Oh, now that it's happened twice, so the first time we came in and we did some reforms, but that didn't quite do the trick. So you know, when things happen twice, we think we, we might just go ahead and fix that." <laughs> the the host is like, "Well, how are you going to fix that?" Oh, there's there's many ideas on the table. They're all under discussion internationally. Too. Like they have no clue, man. They have no clue. But he's playing it off as if they have it all under control. And all they need to do is discuss it. You know, all they need to do is sit down at a round table and put their heads together, and they're going to fix it. Well, guess what? They did that the first time, right? They they didn't just willy nilly throw something out there and say, oh yeah, that, that'll that'll work. No, they did the exact same thing the first time, and it didn't work then either. So what? why do, you, do people think it's going to work this time? Parker Lewis does this exercise where he goes through um, the, the, the Fed minutes, you know, and they, I think they release them like four years after the date. But by the time they're released for public consumption, um, 
you already know what happened. And as you're like reading them with kind of like the knowledge of what has happened over the past four years, like it becomes very obvious that they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're doing and what the second, third, fourth order effects are. You know, again, like you just said, they weren't trying to put a Band-Aid on it the first time. They thought that they were actually fixing it. They're going to put these regulations in place. They're going to tighten things up, make sure these businesses are more resilient. But the reality is, is they're not going to be more resilient until you stop bailing them out. Like you need them, they, like they need to be able to fail. So that way better market structures can emerge. Yeah, and they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, I used to think that they're central bankers were kind of evil people. I think they're really trying to do their best, but if they let it collapse, you know, um, we've talked about this in regards to repo. If money stops moving completely and freezes up completely and everybody defaults, that means the money supply actually goes to zero. And that would be a Mad Max type scenario. So um, it's, it's really hard to justify that at the exact moment if you can kick the can down the road. Right. And so, uh, I, that's why I believe that if they can kick it, they will kick it. And that's just human nature. Um, I don't think they have any like benevolent uh, motives or anything. They actually would like to fix it, but they just can't, you know? And so they do, the only thing possible is to kick the can. Uh, I also was thinking about the minutes and stuff. Yeah. If you look at the dot plots, you know, that was introduced, I think around the, uh, 2008 recession when they try to predict the next two years of interest rates and just like if you uh, watch a time lapse of going between these dot plots they just go all over the place they have no idea what the next two years when they look two years ahead they have they have no idea i mean i can't predict six months ahead i i don't know how they can um you know, even just wait. like the most intimate factors of my life, let alone such a complex system as a global economy um, that you are constantly throwing wrenches into. Right. Um, and to talk about like, OK, Powell, you know, you don't have to think that Powell is like this evil overlord Sith to like understand that the system that he's responsible for has misaligned incentives. Right. So misaligned incentives versus like evil to the core rotten to the core like they they kind of create the same things except that honestly misaligned incentives are more scalable because now you're just getting good normal maybe you know passive people plugging them into a bad system and they're churning out evil right so i mean ultimately we got to burn it down like he can be as nice and as well-meaning as he wants but as long as he's trying to like lead this uh, Federal Reserve system into the future and prolong its existence. I think that there's going to be limitations on on you know human growth and potential. Absolutely, and one of the things too you said there about you you can't predict six months in the future, but uh, you, we can predict the Bitcoin supply, right? We can predict things. There will be Bitcoin blocks coming out every ten minutes, and so that is uh, that takes one of these variables out of the system, and it makes people be, be able to plan better for the future. And yeah, people will be able to, uh, I mean, it, it, you can kind of think of it like, so if you have a weather, if you're trying to be a meteorologist and predict the weather, um, you're pretty accurate a day, maybe three days out, but five days, seven days, it gets really hard to predict. Um, well, with the 
if you take that analogy to, for the economy, uh, it's hard to predict even 24 hours out now, the, the economic weather. But Bitcoin is going to make it so we can predict seven, seven days, a month ahead of time. And people can make long-term plans. People can increase, uh, uh, start new lines of production years ahead of time because they have, they've taken this variable of monetary policy out of the system. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, no, totally agree. I mean, it's funny because people say, hey, Bitcoin is too volatile to be a unit of account. But the reality is that Bitcoin brings stability and it brings the the ability to make economic calculations with a little bit less complexity. And I think that that is going to exponentially um you know, reduce the cost and uh, the burden of making economic calculations. Uh, so I, I am absolutely bullish on that for sure. Um, should we get into this second clip? Is there anything in the economy that's flashing red? I really don't think so, no. I think there are always risks. I mentioned uh, the risk of, of, the, of the spread of COVID. We're seeing more COVID cases again. Many parts of the country, as you know, are reopening with enthusiasm and uh, time is going to tell whether that was premature. But we do see cases moving up again, not at a high level, but, but it's, uh, you wouldn't want to see them moving back up. You'd want to see them flat or continuing to decline. They're at much lower levels than they were in the winter. Um, vaccination is helping, but uh, that's, that's, I think, the main risk to the speed of the recovery. Can the United States spend trillions on COVID relief and trillions more on infrastructure and social programs without setting a match to inflation. We're not uh, responsible for fiscal policy and we're, we're reluctant to offer advice to Congress. But we've been through times with very large fiscal deficits recently, for example, right after the global financial crisis, and inflation didn't really react to that. If you go back to the 1960s and 70s, then fiscal policy was a big driver of inflation and deficits were Possibly. Uh, there are a lot of theories on that, but you don't really see that now. Ultimately, can we afford to spend the money? I would say it this way. Uh, the U.S. federal budget is on an unsustainable path, meaning the debt is growing faster than the economy, and that's kind of unsustainable in the long run. That doesn't mean debt is at an unsustainable level today. It's not. We can service the debt we have. We can service the debt we're issuing, and that will, be remaining, that will remain the case for the foreseeable future. But we'll have to return to a sustainable path. The time to do that is when the economy is strong and we're fully recovered and people are working and taxes are rolling in. The time to do that is not now. All right, Christian, you go. I wanted to ask you to go first on this one. <laughs> well, I'll just, oh, man. Uh, I'll quickly summarize that. So they started by saying, oh, this is flashing red. Uh, what is flashing red in the economy? And Powell said, COVID. Of course, COVID is the biggest driver that's driving the speed of this recovery. Um, and then, then he's asked about uh, inflation. It, is the Fed in danger of lighting inflation like a match, right? Uh, throwing a match onto the pile of money to, to cause inflation. And Powell said, no, that there's lots of theories that why that th this time is different than the 1960s and 70s. Um, and right now, the big the big takeaway from this clip was that the budget is on an unsustainable path, not at an unsustainable level. So uh, I, I, my first question to Powell would be like, 
well, how do we pay it off then? Like, what is a sustainable path? And he's like, oh, then he continued by just saying that, uh, yeah, we can get back to that, but now is not the time uh, when the economy is stable. That's the time to get back to a, a sustainable path. So um, I, I don't know. It's just the party line. Uh, he's just coming up with something to sound good. He has no clue. What are your thoughts then? Yeah, I didn't get much out of this. This just, it was a propaganda clip. You know, COVID is the issue. Magically, we're on an unsustainable path, but, we, you know, when the economy is strong, then we can afford to get back on the sustainable path. It's just like, dude, we already know that the budget and all of the kind of impending uh, obligations of social security and Medicare, like are already unsust- like they have reached unsustainable levels. So it's like, who are you trying to fool? I feel like they've kind of gotten to the point where it's like, there's no going back. Like this debt is going to be jubilee or something at some point. So until then we need to keep kicking the can down the road because you know, that's all, that's all we can do. And we're in this kind of mess that we have to continue to reinforce. So, I mean, it's just like, in what world are we in a sustainable level? Like we have surpassed the sustainable level, you know, years and years and years ago, before, way far before COVID. Yeah, and that's one thing that Greg Foss, that we interviewed a couple um, episodes ago, he was saying that it's mathematically impossible. And we, you know, people in the sound money community, the gold bug community, the Bitcoin community, we've been saying that for decades that this debt is just, it's mathematically impossible to pay it off. So there's two paths. There's two paths to fix fix this in my mind. Path number one is the debt is paid somehow, right? Somehow the the borrower uh, has to pay for it. And the other option is that the lender has to pay for it. So it's that there's going to be a default. So those are the two paths. Those are the only two paths possible. And right now, the first one where the borrower pays it off, that's mathematically impossible. So that only leaves one path left. And it has to end in default of some sort. Yeah, I mean, again, this is Powell getting up on stage, speaking to people who probably just need to have their nerves calm down. People who are stressed about how we're going to issue all this other spending, how Biden is increasing the military budget beyond what Trump did, like all of this stuff. It's like, okay, well, um, where's the money coming from? And he needs to be like, it's okay. We are doing what's necessary to socialize everything that's going on, make sure that things are looking great on paper for us, and then we'll bring it down, which they'll never do. Um, and I mean, he's just, like you said, he's getting on stage and, you know, speaking the party lines, doing PR work. Like, you know, this versus like this, what we just watched now from 60 Minutes versus what I see from him doing like testimony or like central bank panels complete 180 in terms of like is he answering questions straight is he giving details is he being honest like this is is propaganda as far as i'm concerned oh interesting so this is not a straight shooter powell that we're seeing right here i mean is what you're saying maybe maybe i'm giving him more credit than he deserves maybe he's just not a straight shooter ever but uh i don't know (laughs) i i felt like this is just completely disingenuous I mean, maybe maybe he was serious. I don't know. It just like it just seems like the idea that we are 
you know, I guess he's trying to be reasonable. Like, Hey, we're spending too much right now, but it'll get, we'll, we'll get back in line. Like that's been on brand. I think that that's mm-hmm. been consistent, but like insinuating that, I mean, I guess he can't just go on TV and say, yeah, no, we're at unsustainable levels. It's all going to blow up. He can't say that. He can't <laughs> go on 60 minutes and say that. So I don't know. Like even though I think anyone who's paying attention already knows that that's the case. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that that he's it's this whole thing is to calm you down because I haven't watched mainstream media in a long time, especially not 60 minutes, but um, I watched this whole interview on their website, which I will include down in the show notes for everybody. But uh, man, just right off the bat, the guy's voice is all calming. It's like trying to put you to sleep almost. I don't know who watches this, but, but listening to podcasts, listening to modern um, like alternative media, it's a completely different than this type of thing. This type, this thing just seems like it's trying to hypnotize you into um, keep you asleep. I don't know, but I, I recommend everybody go and watch this because man, it just stood out to me like a sore thumb. Like you said, just calm down, everybody. Watch the watch, tick tock, tick tock. We're gonna hypnotize you. Oh man, it was bad. It's Let's like we're gonna clip. brainwash you with knowledge. Sixty minutes. <laughs> yeah, and they even have that watch at the front. So, anyway, let's All get right. in the next one, dude. This is the CBDC clip. Um, it's um, right on topic for us. So, new listeners, we talk about this all the time. And I think it's uh, really important because we hear this from a lot of people. It's not just some macro pundits and some economists. I mean, it's everybody seems to think that the government can just ban it, ban Bitcoin, and come out with their own copy. And so we try to ram this home every time that they, uh, Powell or Lagarde or any of these people talk about CBDCs, we try to take it apart. So that's what this clip is going to be about. The Chinese last month unveiled the world's first digital currency from a major power, currency that would not be printed but would exist only in cyberspace on your phone, for example. Is the Fed working on a digital dollar? We are actually evaluating that. Most um, major countries uh, are now looking at, at the possibility of having a digital currency and really asking the question, in our very modern advanced economy with a, with a, a fast, efficient, full-blown payment system, would adding a, a, a digital currency, a form of digital currency, would it actually benefit the public that we serve? That's the question that we're asking. We're working very hard on that. We're also doing quite a lot of technological experiment. I mean, technology has made this a possible thing. And so we feel it's our obligation to understand it. How would it work? What would the features of it be? There are many subtle and difficult policy choices and design choices that you'd have to make. We're doing all that work. We have not made a decision to do this because, again, the question is, will this benefit the people that we serve? And we need to answer that question well. And we need to involve the public and Congress deeply in that process because it would be an important step if we were to do this. But given the fact that the final decision hasn't been made, you are doing, if I understand you correctly, software development, even graphic design, on what a digital dollar would look like and act like. Yes, we're doing lots and lots of work. We're, we're doing stuff jointly with, foreign, uh, with other central banks. We're doing things at the Boston Fed, and many of the regional feds have little projects going on. Here at the board, we have uh, a group of people who are doing software 
development and that kind of thing. You know, this is really just table stakes. This is understanding the technology and the possibilities so that you can really address the policy issues. You think it's likely? I think it's possible, is all I would say. You've seen many other countries like ours, well-off countries like ours, that are looking at it seriously. In some of those countries, the use of cash has declined precipitously. That is not the case here. Americans still like to use cash. So it's, it's something that will be decided based on the situation here in the United States. Are you considering a digital dollar in order to compete with the cryptocurrencies that are out there already, like Bitcoin? That's not the principal reason, I wouldn't say. Uh, it is a fact that there are, there are private sector uh, currencies, stable coins and, and cryptocurrencies as well. Uh, those are not at a level or a scale that, that um, is concerning at this point. Really, it, really, the fundamental question for us is, if we add this, will that help the public? Will the public be better off? And will there be any negatives, too? There, you know, will, will that have perhaps unexpected effects in other parts of the financial system that we need to consider in weighing the costs and, and benefits of this? We're the, we're the world's reserve currency. The dollar is so important. We need to get this right. We do not need to be the first ones to do this. We, we want to get it right, and that's what we're going to do. He doesn't seem too worried, does he? I'm, I'm watching that clip and looking at my Bitcoin ticker, and it's just beautiful seeing Bitcoin tick up <laughs> 63K, 400, 63K, 500. Just like, yep, you just keep talking right out of your ass, bro. Here comes Bitcoin eating your lunch. First of all, his answer was very consistent with what he said before. So uh, yes. if anything, it was just a, a little bit more polished of a version of the answer. Again, I feel like this is kind of like the PR version of the testimony that he's been giving uh, to some degree. In terms of will central bank digital currencies ever be relevant, I, I don't think that they will be. And it's, you can see from what he's saying here that they're never going to ship right? Mm -hmm. They are experimenting, they're tinkering. Like by the time they're ready to ship, where is Bitcoin going to be? Where are the stable coins going to be? Where are the shit coins going to be? Because the most, they're all in the wild. They're all acting right now and growing and building, right? What are they doing? They're, they're playing around in some weird walled garden. Like they can't even roll out a vaccine, right? Go to Europe. How's Europe going to roll out a new groundbreaking digital currency that people are actually going to use without a gun pointed to their head when they can't roll out anything else. They can't like, I mean, I just don't think that any of these players are going to ship. And then like you said on our last episode, uh, you know, they mentioned China rolling out this, you know, central bank digital currency that's going to be so dominant. They're like giving away $200 worth of it to individuals and they can't even get them to use it. Like they're, they're still in the airdrop stage of figuring out tokenomics, right? By the time they figure out you need proof of work, you know, where's Bitcoin yeah. going to be again? Like I just like, it, it's hilarious because this is a narrative that normies want so bad because they want to be like, look, our statist beliefs are delivering us cutting edge technology and we're crypto forward too and all this stuff. But it's just like never going to happen. That last point you made, man, that was really great. Um, this is stringing along those status. And this has come up several times in the last day, at least for me and, and the stuff I've been reading is um, Bitcoin works beautifully by rewarding the people that deserve it, 
right? The people that understand, the people that go out on a limb and they take the risk and they hodl long-term, like those are the people that are going to get rewarded. And those statists that continually badmouth, continually um, uh, try to call Bitcoin a tulip or a Ponzi scheme and, and all these things, they don't hold it. And so that they don't get rewarded. Um, and now the CBDC thing, that gives them an actual, uh, like a legitimate reason to hold off. Because, oh, the Fed will just come out with something to compete. Um, the ECB is coming out with something. And look, China's coming out with something. And so they, that gives them this, uh, this reason to trust in their status beliefs. And it's just going to drive them further and further down on the reward scale. I think that's, that's a beautiful thought. That, that's exactly how it is. And, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit poetic, right? Um, but ultimately, like, if you think a CBDC is going to be legitimate, or is going to be effective, outside of just vi- being forced upon people with violence, like as the state is, does, you know, that's kind of the only way the state can enforce anything as it is, is, you know, forcing people to do things with violence. Um, so there's no way that it's going to compete. Like Powell's like, how is this going to create value? I don't know. And like, now they're trying to figure out ways that they can fit in. Like, look, we need to do this because it's going to come up with this value. It's like, none of you guys are trying to create sound money. None of you guys are trying to do anything that's new other than create a socialized payments layer. That's it. Like the ECB, it's about payments. All these organizations about payments. Guess what? The only thing stopping global payments from happening today is regulation. That is the only thing. So like, it's hilarious that they're trying to solve payments regulation, you know, hurdles with some sort of like state payments layer. Like, yeah, of course, pal, you don't know how this is going to help the American people. Like there's no clear thing. It's just not solving anything. It's not fixing money. It's not fixing anything. We don't have payment issues outside of regulation and interoperability issues that stem from regulation. Like there's nothing that is being fixed here and he knows it. And that's why they're experimenting and trying to figure it out. They're trying to find this, you know, they're trying to find a problem to stick this solution into. Yeah. So programmable money, it's programmable regulation. I think they probably think that they can make more efficient regulation with this programmable layer uh, to the financial system, but uh, they're going to find out quickly that that doesn't work. I, I think it's all comes down to game theory because like they have to say they're working on it or looking at it because they have to look responsible in the eyes of people, especially the big billionaires and uh, trillion dollar wealth funds and all this stuff. They have to look responsible. Like we are doing our due diligence on this. We're looking at how a CBDC will work. Um, if there's value there, then we're going to um, pr- uh, uh, go along with it. But if not, you know, we're, we're just, we're, we don't want to rush things. We don't have to be first. So they, they have to say that to, to uh, game theoretically to keep the confidence of the system. But that at the same time forces these people, these status to hold off on, on buying Bitcoin because they think the government will take care of them. So um, I think all of these things are, it's just so beautiful. Like I, uh, you've mentioned me saying this before about the Bitcoin's incentives uh, are aligned or uh, aligns incentives. And this is the same thing. Like the game theory that plays out with Bitcoin in the picture is just so it's such a beautiful thing, man. Everything slides into place the way it should be. 
Bitcoin aligns incentives, and we are living in a Bitcoin world now. Have no doubt about yes. it. Again, that's why FedWatch is important because we're a macro podcast that acknowledges this reality that we are we're in the Bitcoin game. These are Bitcoin's incentives now. Um, yeah. And yeah. And wait, wait till the big money learns about it. I mean, they they already are starting to grasp it, but. I think there could be something right around the corner. Um, I was talking to one of my good friends the other day. I said that it just feels like something's about to happen. Um, and it could be like a sovereign adopting Bitcoin or something like that. So I think as soon as people catch on, as soon as this big money catches on, um, it's going to happen really, really fast. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And uh, gradually and then suddenly, and Michael Saylor said this before, the difference between this and another network effect is, you know, no other network effect can uh, some rich guy bring a billion of his friends with him, right? No, but with money, some rich guy can bring all of this value into the network um, all by themselves. So uh, I think that that is definitely a key distinction here between other networks, between how Metcalf's law um, play goes into play into Bitcoin's network and the value there. Um, you know, kind of speaking about head or tailwinds for Bitcoin and reasons to be bullish. You know, we're recording here um, on April 13th. Uh, so tomorrow, which is going to be Wednesday, which is when all of y'all will be listening to this because this episode is dropping tomorrow. Coinbase will be uh, making their direct listing. Uh, Coinbase's equity is already uh, past 10% of all of the Bitcoin's networks. Um, so, uh, I mean, people are p storing a ton of value into, you know, what is going to be the biggest IPO in history um, or the biggest direct listing in history, the biggest, I don't even know how to compare this, but by far the biggest public offering um, ever uh, that is going to happen. I think Part of the reason why it's the biggest is because so much money printing has gone burr and the the dollar as a unit of account is completely distorted. Um, on the flip side, um, you know, Coinbase is built on Bitcoin. Like, I don't think people have fathomed this, that Bitcoin is so important and this is such early days, but still, you know, the AOL of Bitcoin is going to be the biggest direct, you know, the biggest public offering of a company ever, bigger than Google bigger than anything else. Like uh, if Bitcoin isn't the new internet, if Bitcoin isn't, uh, isn't the next revolution, you know, I don't, I don't see how you can look at Coinbase and uh, this public offering as uh, you know, and justify it. Yeah, it's a huge, huge deal. It'll bring, uh, it'll drive its own news cycle and get people um, paying attention to Bitcoin and the, the price obviously well, we're just right in the middle of this bull market. So I think this will be the impetus towards that, the next leg. Uh, I liked how you put that, the AOL of Bitcoin. That's pretty interesting. I, I don't really like uh, Coinbase as a company. I, I don't like that they're so big and that they're, they have such, so many coins in custody that uh, they are, you know, they, what they acquire hacking team, Neutrino. A couple years back so they have like people that they sell kyc data to the government even though they don't need it for you know profitability they don't need it to make their business sustainable it's just it doesn't even scratch right. the surface of their their revenues right and this this neutrino uh 
acquisition that they made, these guys sold data to horrible regimes that uh, had like, what was it? Um, what's the term I'm looking for? Human rights abuses. Uh, and so like we're talking about like, like Coinbase, the Saudis, the, we're talk, yeah. you know, like some of the most evil dictators. Yeah. And Coinbase was like, oh yeah, we want their technology. We want to use them. And they would have kept those guys on the payroll too, if the Bitcoin community hadn't raised a big stink about it. So, um, and we don't know if they're actually gone. They said they were fired, but uh, we don't really know that. Um, and what else? Uh, Brian Armstrong it promoted education for scams, sold scams on his, on Coinbase. And so the, I have mixed feelings about this, but I do think that Coinbase will bring a lot of attention to Bitcoin this, this year and especially this week and uh, pump the price. So that's good. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think Bitcoiners don't like Coinbase for many reasons, right? And that is despite Coinbase being the biggest on-ramp in Bitcoin today and for the majority of Bitcoin's history. Like, I think it, it, it'll be, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more important on-ramp than Coinbase. And despite that, that all that utility, Bitcoiners still don't like Coinbase because of how unethical and how antithetical Coinbase is to Bitcoin's ethos. So all I would say to add to that is, if Coinbase is doing this well, just know that Coinbase is not bigger than Bitcoin. Coinbase is not 10% of Bitcoin. So if Coinbase is really valued at this, then Bitcoin is really, really, really fucking undervalued. Like Coinbase's success is a fraction, is a tiny little speck of what Bitcoin is doing to the world. So if you're an early investor and you have a bunch of shares that you're going to be selling here this week uh, in Coinbase, what are you going to do with that money? Are you going to buy Bitcoin with it? Probably. I mean, I I hope so. Yeah, these guys are just going to flip billions of dollars are going to sell these boomers this uh just some stock right Coin. and they're gonna yeah they're gonna it's sell, almost poetic uh, they're gonna sell boomers some coin and they're gonna buy bitcoin so i think this is man alive it is a perfect storm for the price yeah so uh what's your way too short-term prediction for bitcoin price end of the week prediction oh end of the week prediction over 70 yeah. for sure, for sure. Over 70. 70. So it's I, about to be a hell of a week, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bitcoin can go 5,000 a day. I think it went 5,000 today. So five, another 5,000 tomorrow is not that big of a deal. Um, I we have On my Discord, we have a monthly prediction that we do with the guys in the trading room. And so my prediction is 88,800 by the end of the month. All right. We got some time for that. We have a uh, like uh, two and a half weeks for eighty eight thousand. Um, yeah, we're we're saying hundred uh, k by May and two hundred k by Conference Day. So uh, if you want to get hyped for the Bitcoin twenty twenty one conference, pump Bitcoin to uh, to two hundred k by Conference Day. Buy your ticket using promo code Satoshi. Pay with Bitcoin. Save yourself two hundred dollars. I mean, had to get that shill in there. Um, in terms of price, yeah, I mean, I, I think this week is going to be a big week. Last week, I FOMO'd really hard around like 58K. I, it was when I was seeing the charts that were the glass node charts sh- showing miners selling and uh, and seeing that the chart flipped to miner accumulation. 
Um, and I was just like, that is the most bullish thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, so if miners can consistently stay in, in the accumulation and stop selling, like there's going to be a massive short squeeze. There's going to be a massive, you know, just sat squeeze in general. There's just not enough sats out there. The price is going to have to go up in fiat terms. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, man. This I thought this was a great episode. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, with that being said, companies already own, public companies already own 1.3 million Bitcoin. So um, that's just public companies who have reported it. So there's only 21 million Bitcoins. There's a lot of rich whales out there and private companies and organizations that are not disclosing their Bitcoin holdings. There are not enough sats out there. Well, there's not even 21 million anymore, right? They estimate 4 million lost. And um, I mean, how many have been mined now? Eight and a half, 18 and a half million? 18, 18 minus whatever has been lost. Yeah. So, I mean, what, 14 million to go around and public companies own over a million? Jeez, that's crazy. Yeah. So public companies already own 10% and Coinbase is, is valued yeah. at more than 10% of Bitcoin. If you. Oh my gosh. Crazy, man. So bullish. Yep. Yep. The corn can only go up. Ansel, where can people find you? On Twitter, at Ansel Lindner. I also do another podcast, Bitcoin and Markets. Uh, podcast comes out periodically, but I do do a weekly newsletter. So go to BitcoinandMarkets.com to sign up for that. Yep. You guys can find me at CK underscore Snarks and at Bitcoin Magazine. Best place to follow all Bitcoin news, the best research, the best analysis and uh yeah the best podcasts of course so uh make sure to find me and ansel at bitcoin magazine you can find all of this great work um at bitcoinmagazine.com and come meet us at bitcoin 2021 one last time promo code satoshi save yourself 10 percent off i'll see y'all in miami peace A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.